Hey, I'm Raji Sohal. It's time for the Sunday Show podcast. Here's what we have in store for you. The BC Teachers Federation has a new president-elect. We found out what Clint Johnson's priorities are for the bargaining table. And as mask mandates are removed for the return of kids at school from their spring break, we check in with an advocate from Safe Schools Coalition of BC. But first, Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association, on how physicians are struggling with mental health. Good morning and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Raji Sohal. More and more British Columbians who work in hospitals and healthcare don't think they'll last another two years. This is according to a poll from the Hospital Employees Union. And to talk about this, we have Dr. Alika Lafontaine on the line. He is president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association. Good morning, Alika. Good morning. So, doctor, what was your reaction to this poll about BC healthcare workers' uh, mental health suffering? You know, I I think that, of course, I'm concerned about the poll, but it links to a broader pattern we're seeing across the country where persons who've been at the front line of everything that's been happening over the past couple of years are realizing that, you know, the, the stresses of working and the environments that they work in maybe need a bit of a change just for their own mental health and wellness. And I, I think when it comes to patients, we all need to be very concerned. Is this, did this come about due to the pandemic or, or how much was it already an issue? I think even before the pandemic, there were signs that persons who worked in healthcare uh, were expressing burnout. You know, from our own national physician survey back in 2017, we knew that 30% of respondents described burnout. Uh, we know from our own recent data that this number has almost doubled. And just like the survey that you're quoting here, our own data shows that, you know, more than almost half of respondents identified that they're going to decrease the amount of time that they spend working in healthcare. And so it is definitely part of a broader pattern that seems to be getting worse over the coming years. So what are those signs that you're talking about there, the signs of burnout? So burnout is really the effect of environments that people work in that create this this feeling of, of helplessness, this feeling of being overwhelmed. Um, I think a lot of the things that are specific to what healthcare workers are going through right now, and which I think maybe what hospital uh, employees union uh, participants in that survey might be going through is, you know, chronic understaffing, feeling like the situations that you're being put into clinically and, and elsewhere are maybe beyond the things that you've been trained for, uh, having to come in repeatedly for overtime or other things just because there, there is no one else to, to provide the care. Healthcare is this this interesting working environment where, you know, we, we talk a lot about patient safety and, and improvement, but when push comes to shove, we still have to provide the care. And often the stresses that go along with that fall on the shoulders of our front line. Alika, some people are going to say, okay, doctors know that they go into a stressful system, whether there's a pandemic or not, and they need to get over it, that this is part of the job. What, what's your reaction mm-hmm. to that? I think any time that you look at a group of individuals, whether it's doctors or nurses or people outside of healthcare, expressing concern that the environments they work in are, are unsafe or they're having escalating levels of burnout, I think the more important part is to sit back and, and think of what will happen if these people actually leave. Um, we do know that medicine is a very stressful environment to work in, but I think the demands that frontline workers experience day to day is much worse than anything I could have imagined when I went through training, you know, more than a decade ago. 
even two, three years ago, you know, what we labeled as stress and burnout was a lot different than what happens today. So you weren't you know, prepared who, to face what you, you see in medical school? I think no one is prepared for, for what came up here. You know, if you look at the experience of a nurse, for example, I mean, you, you come, you work a full shift, you go home, you're supposed to get, you know, some rest and relaxation over the weekend so you can be ready for the next week. You get mandatory to come in and provide the same sort of care, and then you go back right into your line again the next week. I mean, no one is really prepared for that sort of environment. And I, I think when we blame the person who's going through it, often what we're doing is just trying to justify the system that really shouldn't function the way that it is right now. One thing I would say that is remarkable is that the kind of work that one sees in the medical mm-hmm. field uh, can sometimes be traumatizing and there isn't mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. to step back and reflect upon it. So what happens for someone who's meant to provide you know, bedside manner and constant care and do this all in uh, overtime? Um, what happens over time if they don't, don't take time to step back to reflect, to take care of themselves? You know, I, I think that's a really insightful question. And, and one thing that I'll, I'll go back to is that if numbers are getting worse, that means at one time they were actually better. You know, I, I had lots of experiences uh, in training where I came across traumatic situations and I had the time to sit down with, you know, trusted mentors and colleagues and actually unpack what happened and work my way through it to see if I could do a better job the next time I went through it. You know, those spaces for time and reflection have disappeared, but they did exist at one time, you know, and so uh, the federal government has announced, you know, $2 billion to support uh, the surgical backlog. You know, we're looking at reinvestments in in healthcare being announced in in different places. I expect this will accelerate because governments are going to realize that it's a problem that they can't ignore because it's gotten so bad. I think the the real focus should be how do we consolidate our resources, not so much look at how can we double capacity, but instead how can we support the people who are in the system right now? And do you have ideas on how we can do that? Yeah, definitely. We need to hire more nurses. That's 100%. And I, I think we need to rethink the amount of pressure that we put on frontline relative to, you know, what they can actually take. You know, they, there's a movement that we use in healthcare where you look at ratios of, of frontline to patients. You know, that's that's constantly gotten bigger and bigger. You know, the weight has grown heavier and heavier. I think we need to rethink some of those numbers. Uh, I think we need to get much more transparent about our quality improvement. And when it comes to health human resources, I think we all have to sit down together and talk about what's really going on in healthcare and just be more open about it. You know, working towards an actual strategy on how do we address these these workforce crises and how do we take capacity to train in one place and make sure people can move to another in the country. Last week, we heard from uh, Dr. Romnik Dosanjh, the, the president of uh, the Society of GPs in BC, and she said the current situation in BC with burnout uh, of doctors, she said it's not inevitable that it can be prevented, although you're also mentioning that things were better at a, at a time, that it is a, a, mm-hmm. a challenging field regardless, no matter what. I do always remember doctors being um, exhausted, that they were always working really hard. But, but I will say in the last two years, what I've witnessed in hospital settings um, is that doctors are run off their feet, that they almost seem threadbare. Um, are we at a tipping point? I think you're definitely right. We are at a tipping point. You know, 
One of the things that I think really underlies this discussion is that healthcare providers are somehow less resilient or less willing to work as hard as we did in the past. Uh, if you actually look at the data, this is clearly not true. People are working as hard and harder than they've ever had in you know, the history of since measuring, measuring these different types of metrics. Um, I, I think what we've really lost and what I said before is, you know, the opportunity to sit back and reflect on what's actually going on, providing that support yes. to healthcare workers. When they run into these problems, they can actually report it back to persons who make decisions in the system. And we can make investments and changes okay. in the places that, that are causing stress. Okay. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Hello and welcome back to the show. So spring break has come to an end and that means back to school for students. But are our kids safe without a mask in classrooms? Jen Hyten is a teacher and member of the advocacy group Safe Schools Coalition BC. She joins me on the line now. Good morning, Jen. Good morning, Raji. All right, Jen, what do you think tomorrow will look like at schools? I think there will be a lot of um, excited kids to be back at school. I, um, if you're referring to whether or not they're going to be wearing masks, it will be a question mark in terms of um, how many will be wearing masks and how many won't be. When you learned that the mask mandate in classrooms was going to be lifted upon return from spring break, what did you think? I thought that it was a mistake um, because the BA2 variant is growing in BC. And in fact, over spring break, it is now um, dominant in BC, according to the BC CDC variant reports. And so this is a concern because when watching what's going on in the UK, for example, and some other places where uh, they are a little bit farther ahead, about three weeks or four weeks ahead of us, in terms of BA2 variant spread, they are seeing increased cases, increased hospitalizations, and that includes kids as well. So for the government to be removing the mask mandate while there's this new variant uh, spreading and, and creating havoc in other countries, we don't want that to happen here. Yeah, Jen, just to clarify, you mean in referring to the UK and what's happening there, just that in UK and other parts of Western Europe, the uh, number of cases of COVID have gone up. That's what you're referring to, right? Yes, that's what I'm referring to. And on the ground reports from um, parents and students and teachers in the UK is that it is starting to show up as an increased illness at schools, um, some classes having to you know, they don't have very many kids in the class because they're all homesick. Um, a couple of schools have even had to shut down because they ran out of staff. So, you know, this is like they're not even, they're at the beginning of their, their BA2 wave. So, Jen, what would you like to see happen here in BC? Well, we would like to see, number one, that the mask mandate be returned just because it has been shown to be a very useful public health tool that does help reduce spread. Um, On the same day that Dr. Henry announced the lifting of the mask mandate in schools, there was a study released, actually, that showed that universal masking policy reduced transmission by 72%. 
um, in, uh, compared to schools that had optional masking policies. And this study examined the experience of over 1.1 million students and 157,000 staff over nine states during the Delta wave. And so it shows that uh, universal masking does have a good effect. Um, and the other thing is, is we would like to see a lot more air cleaning going on because COVID is airborne and it's established now. And so that needs to happen. Like why they would remove the mask mandate without having dealt with cleaning the air when we know that COVID now spreads through the air um, is a big puzzle because, yes, yes, they haven't dealt with that part yet. Okay, so Jen, why remove that layer? Jen, science shows that, as you mentioned, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is airborne. Transmission is, is via aerosol that, that lingers in the air. And so masks were considered one protective measure, but so was ventilation, um, of course, along with a bit of distance from others because of the aerosol transmission. So what do you understand and what does Safe Schools Coalition BC understand the province has done to change ventilation in classrooms given that the mask mandate has been pulled? They haven't made any new changes since the mask mandate has been pulled and they've had a year and a half to address the fact that COVID is airborne, put HEPA filtration in school so that there's air cleaning closer to where the kids are um, and the staff are so that if a teacher has it or if a student has it, that the air around them is being cleaned, uh, like, right there at the source. So, uh, you know, for example, Ontario, they bought 110,000 HEPA units, um, 70,000 in last summer, and 40,000 in January, this January, to put in schools for um, classrooms and learning spaces. So if the Ontario government can purchase 110,000 HEPA filtration units, then BC can too. It's just the BC government has bought zero. You know, the only HEPA filtration units that have been put in classrooms have been because some districts have managed to scrape enough funds together to be able to purchase a few, but not very many. You know, there's actually very, very few HEPA filtration units um, in classrooms across BC. Yes, I understand from uh, talking to some parents of uh, who send their children to private schools that they went through uh, major installations of uh, HEPA fil- filtrations and uh, updated ventilation systems in their classrooms. And so you you don't know of any um, sweeping. Uh, measure that was taken to install brand new um, filtration and ventilation systems in public schools across BC to prepare for the mask mandate removal? The government has said that they've put in some money. Um, they've said that they've, they've gotten districts to upgrade the filters. And I do know that some districts really did. Like they upgraded from uh, MERV 11 to MERV 13 in the buildings that could take it or some cases MERV 8 to MERV 11. But other than that, um, there hasn't been the widespread uh, attention to air quality that there really should be, according to what ASHRAE is now recommending for buildings during a pandemic.
Okay, Jen. And I know some people listening to this will say uh, that they don't want their children to wear masks at school, that they just feel they've had enough and it's time to go back to normal. What do you say to that? I say I totally understand in terms of people wanting things to go back to normal. I mean, it has been two years and it is frustrating that, you know, we still have to think about COVID and we still have to deal with it. But the reality is, is that the virus isn't done with us. So we would like to be done with the virus, but it keeps mutating. And that, and that's the thing. It mutates on us, and so then we keep getting these new variants. Uh, so we can't just let it spread and, and run rampant through um, society because when we do, it does result in some adverse effects for people. So, for example, the Omicron wave sent more kids to the hospital than all the previous waves combined. You know, and that could be because kids are not as vaccinated as adults are. Um, For kids, the 5 to 11-year-old age group, the vaccination rate has stalled at 56% with at least one or two doses. And so 44% are still not vaccinated. Um, And then within that 56%, about 30% have got their second dose. So that, that rate is kind of creeping up. Mm-hmm. But the 56%, it's been that way with one dose. It's stayed at 56% for the last yeah. month. It's kind of plateaued. Well, thank you so much, Jen Hyten, for being with us this morning. Thank you so much. Good morning and welcome back to our show. The BC Teachers Federation has a new president. Joining us is Clint Johnson, the president-elect of the BCTF. Good morning, Clint. Good morning, Ravi. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. So what made you want to take on this role in particular? Um, Well, uh, like a lot of people, I got involved with my local first at the union, local union level. And that was was very exciting. I found it, it great to work with people and to be able to support my colleagues and, um, you know, just found it interesting. So I kept pursuing it till I got up to the provincial level and, and now I found myself here. Okay. And what changes have you noticed uh, in society in, say, the last few years uh, that you want to develop further in the school system via teachers? Well, I think um, if you look at one of the things that's happening in society in the last few years is definitely uh, an acknowledgement and understanding that the movement towards truth and reconciliation and decolonizing a lot of our structures is is much more on the public's mind right now. So that's something I would love to continue being part of, continue seeing the BCTF work with uh, the employer and government on. Um, and also, I, though I think um, over the last couple of years, particularly during COVID, the public's become much more aware of how much teachers do to support students and children um, and the community in general. So I'd like to see see that role acknowledged and see the teachers uh, get a good contract going forward that shows that what's been said over the last couple of years about the vitality of their work is reflected in how they're treated and how their career is treated. Yeah. And how do you feel about the pandemic measures in schools and, and what's about to change tomorrow morning with the uh, mask mandates? Well, you know, that is definitely, it's a big step. Um, we've known from the beginning that going into the pandemic was very hard and coming out of it was actually going to be hard as well. So there's a lot of people who'll be really anxious. A lot of our members included, a lot of students, a lot of students' parents. So we're hoping to see uh, that kind of trauma-informed lens when people are making decisions. We know it's a choice now. Um, we know that people can choose to wear a mask or not wear a mask. And we hope when people are making that choice, they're thinking about everybody around them, about people who may be themselves immunocompromised or be close to people who are. And 
and considering that when they're choosing whether or not to keep that extra layer of protection on. What are you hearing from teachers about that? Well, that's exactly what we're hearing is, is um, mixed reactions, but we're hearing certainly a lot of nervousness, particularly in the elementary schools. Um, you know, we have to remember that 5 to 11s can get immunized now, but those percentages of how many of the 5 to 11-year-olds are immunized are still very low. So there is uh, understandably a lot of nervousness about being in a small space with a lot of people for a long time. Um, so we're hoping that everyone thinks about that when they're considering whether to wear a mask and that we see masks continue to be provided and 95 masks for employers and students alike um, so that everyone can feel as safe as they can. And are you satisfied with how the province has uh, dealt with ventilation in classrooms? Well, you know, we'll give the province credit for getting started on it for sure. Um, we definitely think that it probably could have been done a little bit more quickly, a little more thoroughly, but I'm sure that's you know, everyone's perspective when you're the ones on the ground in the classroom. Um, so they have certainly made some moves. That money that was put in by the federal government and the province towards that was a good start, is what we would term it. But there's work there that needs to be finished, for sure. Um, you know, there's lots of schools around the province that still don't meet those standards. So we want to see that funding and the resources and that work continue until uh, we're confident that if another pandemic hits, we're in a much better place in terms of ventilation. And that's not part of the debate. At the place we're at, with the pandemic right now, what is the union looking to attain? Um, well, right now, like I said, what, one of our primary concerns as we go back to school uh, later, later this week, tomorrow, um, is that masks are still provided by the employer and 95 masks for employees and we think as well students um, so that those who choose to and those who, as I said, have some vulnerabilities or are close people with vulnerabilities, they shouldn't face a financial barrier to making a decision about whether or not they want to continue wearing masks to try to keep them and themselves and those around them safe. And what's uh, the focus going to be at the bargaining table? What will what will your issues be? Well, I think you can you can see in the media already that um, like other frontline workers, like our colleagues and other public sector unions who are on the front lines, we're looking to have a pay increase certainly that keeps up with inflation. Um, you know that's been a historical problem already getting getting wage raises in your contract that don't keep up with inflation means you're actually going backwards. And we know that cost of living inflation is projected to be very high over the next while. You can hear some very different numbers, but everyone agrees it's going to be high. So we need something that keeps us up to that cost of inflation rate and also gives us a little bit more so that we get an actual raise. That's one of our primary concerns. And then also looking at recruitment and retention, of course. Okay. Can you say more about recruitment and retention? Yeah, well, we need to, you know, salary is certainly a part of recruitment and retention. People aren't going to come from anywhere else to work in BC if the salary isn't enough to let you live here comfortably. BC is one of the most expensive jurisdictions in Canada. We're short of teachers. Nobody debates that anymore. And um, so we need to make sure that the workload is at a level that allows people to consider this a tenable career for a long-term career. They need to know that the compensation is going to be enough that they can live in the community they're working comfortably. Um, and we need to make sure that more teachers are trained as well. So there's a, a, there's a few things in the mix there, but it's a problem that's been going on for a while that certainly needs to be addressed because COVID exacerbated it, definitely. Clint Johnson, a lot of people looking at the pandemic would say no thank you to the role that you took on as president-elect of the BCTF. <laughs> yeah. What is it that drew you to the position? Um, well, like I said, I mean, I think I've talked to my children about it. I have five children, three still in the K-12 system, and I've talked to them about it because they asked me the same question. So I guess it's the ability to help people. And when you get to the provincial level, certainly those 
those, uh, the work you do takes a long, long, long time. But when you consider we have 46,000 plus members, when you make some progress, when you achieve something, for that many people, um, you know, it feels pretty good to do that for your colleagues. So I think that's what continues to draw me to this work. Okay, so you feel like making an impact. So in your mind, I'm curious, then it's a lofty question, but I would love to know your values around this. What is the purpose of education? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, you know, the purpose, <laughs> <laughs> that is lofty. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the purpose of education to me is to produce um, individuals, to help to produce individuals, to help be part of creating individuals who are able to live a fulfilling life for themselves and able to contribute in a positive way to themselves, those close to them and to the broader community. And I know that does sound lofty, but as you said, it's a lofty question. It's an ideal, right? Also, we are in a position of, uh, of major leadership now, and they say a good leader is curious about what they don't know. So what field are you working on personally, Clint, to understand your own uh, biases about how you see the world? Well, thanks. That's a really good question, actually. As I mentioned already, um, you know, Truth and Reconciliation and um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is in the forefront of everyone's consciousness right now, and that's an area I'm continuing to do personal work on, but also through the Federation. Um, but also equity in general, you know, understanding the the experiences of and the barriers to um, uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of colour particularly in our union, but also in, in society in, in general. Being a white male, I don't have any lived experience of that. So I'm doing everything I can to learn and understand that to help represent our BIPOC members better in our own union, but also to interact with and support work in the community on equity issues. Clint Johnson, congratulations on your new role. Thanks for joining us. And I will have you on very soon again in the future to grill you. <laughs> Thank you very much. appreciate your time this morning. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.